for European investors, European companies doing business with China, investing in China, trading with China, would also be a very important economic opportunity. It would give them a very big advantage. And I think that this would create severe tensions between the US and Europe. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2020 and this new podcast on the US, China and the EU, the great decoupling. Wow, what a topic we're going to talk about today. I'm very pleased to be joined by three eminent experts on US, Chinese and European trade policy, which happen to be an American, a Chinese and a European. I'm very pleased to introduce to you Scott Kennedy, Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. He is here alongside UJ, Senior Research Fellow on China at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, also known as Chatham House. And finally, Franz Paul von der Putte, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingendal Institute and Coordinator of the Klingendal China Center. Now, the topic of today is the U.S., China and EU, the Great Decoupling. This is a massive topic to explore, and a lot has already been written about it, particularly in the context of the ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China, which have now also become increasingly political. And the EU, for better or worse, finds itself to be caught in the middle. But let's start by asking, what would decoupling mean in practice? Scott, can I ask you, what does the U.S. think about when they talk about decoupling. It's good to be here and have this conversation with everybody. So really appreciate it. When Americans talk about decoupling, what they're talking about is eliminating uh, the risks and vulnerabilities that they think come from economic interaction with China, not just through trade, but through advanced technologies like in telecommunications and semiconductors in having supply chains that source raw materials for pharmaceuticals from China, for others. Essentially, they're talking about isolating China or splitting the world into two parts so that the American economy and Western economies aren't dependent on China for either markets or for inputs or can be vulnerable to Chinese surveillance and things like that. And the mathematical equation that advocates use is that less connectivity equals greater security. That's a very prominent idea in Washington now. It is almost baked into every conversation one has here in D.C. It's quite interesting to note that the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer recently wrote a piece where he said that COVID-19 actually helps achieve some of these objectives that he's been talking about in the context of decoupling. How do you see that? It's interesting that Trade Representative Lighthizer himself says that he's not trying to achieve decoupling. Uh, and, you know, I kind of agree for the first several years of the Trump administration, I think his goal 
uh, was to push China as hard as possible, unilateral measures, including tariffs, to try and force China to change, to achieve a more equitable and reciprocal relationship, as they called it. I think they've decided that they couldn't really get that through unilateral pressure. They got the booby prize of the phase one deal, which is a lot smaller than what they were aiming for. And the pandemic reinforced the idea that from their minds, I'm not talking just objective evidence, that you just can't deal with China and it's too risky, that the U.S. wasn't able to get adequate PPE from China and is worried about the uh, active ingredients for pharmaceuticals, et cetera. Therefore, yes, in the short term, there's a lot less travel trade going on. And the administration since uh, late March, early April has turned up the heat on China across the board, really stepping on the gas toward further decoupling. Is this really likely that decoupling can actually happen? I want to turn to you, Jay. How is this viewed in, in China? In global supply chains, the Chinese-American trade relationship is so intense. Is this all just fancy words? Is this all rhetoric? Or should we really be worried about the prospect of decoupling between the two largest economies in the world? Well, let's start from the beginning of the Trump presidency. In the very beginning, the Chinese leadership thought the Trump presidency is much easier to handle compared with his predecessors because Trump cared less about ideology and interested more into the commercial interest and also purchasing more agricultural products. So China thought, let's take it easy, let's take this step of buying more agricultural products and therefore to make American political elites happy. But actually, it turned out to be full-blown a so-called new Cold War between the world two largest titans. What happened was the impression Beijing had now is they don't really know what to do at the first place. Trump doesn't take yes for yes and doesn't take no for no. So what is the, really the meaning for negotiation? And sooner or later, after a couple of months of tit-for-tat trade retaliation between the two, and then the Chinese leadership realized, aha, Finally, what America and what U.S. political elites is asking is asking for a regime change, an economic regime change of China, try to ask China to abandon a so-called state-led economy model and instead to observe the American's market-led model. But obviously, that is not something Chinese Communist Party can afford to do because ultimately, the model on state-led economy is that has been so deeply rooted in and intertwined and embedded was in modern China since 1949. So obviously there's very little room for negotiation. And now what China perceive and China's strategy to go further and China realized perhaps because its own domestic markets are so vast and given what's happened with COVID-19 and perhaps China can afford by drive its own domestic demand and supply in order to make up that part which used to be export towards the United States. So that's the whole ideas of self-reliance behind the thinking of Beijing. That's interesting because here in Europe, we have a discussion about self-reliance and resilience and self-sufficiency as well. And I'll turn to Franz Paul in a second. I just want to dwell on this topic a little bit longer because it suggests that China is pursuing a decoupling of its own. Is that the correct way to read it? I think this whole idea of so-called decoupling or self-reliance, as we discussed earlier, it long exists well before the COVID-19. I mean, in the Chinese mindset, it's actually always deeply rooted into two camps of the world. And China always belongs to another camp. It never belongs to the same camp as the United States. 
So it is always somehow prepared the worst that perhaps one day United States would cut off entire supply towards China and therefore what China can do. I mean, the, the recent example of the Sino-Soviet split back to 1959 and make the Chinese leadership learn a very stern lesson. Whatever happened in terms of technology, in terms of education, in terms of knowledge, and also in terms of market, one has to own by itself. It cannot be controlled by another country. Scott, is there an awareness about how China is responding to U.S. trade policies in that regard? This whole question of perhaps China is going to decouple, to use that term again, sooner than the Americans can. Yes. I think there's two kinds of recognition. First, there's a view that even before the United States took some of the steps that they've done in the last few years, that China already had maintained significant distance from the U.S. and had a wall between itself and the international economy with regard to the internet and social media. A lot of areas of Chinese economy where you can't invest. Also, China's capital account isn't fully open. And so these type of restrictions, Americans would say, those are parts of the Chinese economy which were never coupled to the rest of the world. So we're not in the middle of decoupling them, but it's probably as significant as what the U.S. has been doing. I think there's also a debate going on in Washington about what are the effects of the American policy to build restraints and restrictions toward China. Is it likely to make the U.S. safer? Is it likely to slow down what China is doing or speed it up? As UGA said, uh, the Chinese have gone through this before with the Soviets and and with others. And China is as nationalist as Washington is now. And so this may be accelerating China's technological independence, economic independence. And for those who think economic interdependence provides some type of economic foundation for less conflict, for more collaboration, then this actually raises the risks potentially for conflict and may end up working against the goals that advocates of decoupling are seeking. And that's the kind of debate that we actually really need now in Washington and other capitals. If I can then ask both of you to look into your crystal ball, just in terms of the bilateral U.S.-Chinese dynamic, what do you think the near future holds, UJ? Well, the near future, nobody can really predict what will happen in the next six months or so. But surely, I think this pandemic is a wake-up call for Beijing that perhaps this world is no longer going to be nice towards China and China will have to prepare the worst is yet to come. So what I hear quite often is the Chinese Politburo, since their meeting since in March this year, there's always a thesis of so-called the bottom line thinking. So think about the worst and prepare for the worst. So I think the Chinese leadership has a very grim assessment towards the bilateral relations between China and the United States. I'd agree. I expect between now and the elections in November, the U.S. is going to continue to push on China across the board on economics and national security, on human rights. And I don't think the Chinese are going to give in in any of these places. It doesn't look like they're going to retaliate in a massive way, because I think what they're trying to do is get to the end of the Trump administration as safely as possible. But it doesn't look like they're going to give in. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has repeatedly said that the current tensions are 100% the responsibility of the United States and not due to anything China has done. So I think we've got both sides in a standoff. The question is, while they're in that standoff, how much worse does the relationship get? And 
if the U.S. changes political horses in the winter and come next January, will there be room for the two sides to find some type of accommodation? I don't think it's guaranteed. And I think what we're doing right now is making that harder. And, and maybe that's what hawks want. They want to get the relationship to a place where it's simply unrecoverable. Unfortunately, I think that will end up defeating, not achieving the goals that they want in the first place, which is a more secure America and more secure global economy. Fascinating, but also quite frightening. If I then turn to Franz Paul as our token European panelist today, Europe has also been watching this debate evolve, this tit-for-tat trade war between the US and China, and has tried to figure out a middle road, a third way, if you will. How has Europe been responding and what should it do? Well, I think the what China has been doing for a long time and the US has been doing for the past few years, which is looking for ways to decrease their vulnerabilities. This has now also become an important focus point uh, in Europe. So Europe's economic relations with China also wants to decrease its vulnerabilities. But I think a big uncertainty for the European side is the United States moving towards merely limiting vulnerabilities or uh, is the U.S. moving towards isolating China in order to pressure the Chinese government to fundamentally change its economic model? If it's the second, then this poses a very big dilemma for European politicians and policymakers, because that's, at least at this point, that is a big step further than where Europe stands now, which is looking for ways to decrease vulnerabilities, but not looking for ways to change the economic model in China itself. You could also say that Europe wants to have it both ways. It doesn't want to pick sides. Do you think that that's sustainable in the long run? As the both Scott and UJ said that China is preparing for the worst because that's what sensible policymakers do. As Scott said that this side of the elections, but possibly also after November, things might not necessarily improve. Is it possible for Europe to play that middle road I think it's rapidly becoming more difficult at the moment. In a situation where suppose that the economic ties between the US and China would go away to a large extent, and at the same time, the Chinese domestic consumption becomes an important growth engine for China itself, that would mean that for European investors, European companies doing business with China, investing in China, trading with China, would also be a very important economic opportunity. It would give them a very big advantage in comparison to U.S. companies and U.S. investors. And I think that this would create severe tensions between U.S. and Europe. How do you see that, Scott? What's the debate in Washington regarding Europe's role in the U.S.-China trade war? I think Washington's really frustrated with Europe, and Europe's probably frustrated with the United States. Uh, the U.S. recognizes and shares many of the same values with Europe about the type of world that we want. Not 100% identical. There's some disagreements between the two governments about how you protect data and privacy and, and some other issues, competition policy. But there's a large alignment. On the other hand, the U.S. seems to be so comfortable using its power, whether through regular institutionalized channels or outside them, but Europe is much less comfortable doing that. It's so committed to multilateralism and procedure and process. And I think that that difference is really hamstringing our ability to collaborate on China. We also have some different economic interests. We're competitors in many of the spaces. And I remember sitting in Shanghai early in the Trump administration as it was getting ready to whack China with tariffs. 
And the Europeans around the table who were hosting me for dinner said, well, if you go ahead and do that, we're just going to take your market share. And that's what they've done. I think the U.S. needs to probably move to become a little bit more comfortable working with inside institutions. And Europe needs to be willing to flex its muscles a little bit more. And I think we can talk about ways in which they do that. The Huawei case is maybe one we can come back to as a preeminent example of how we might try and find some middle ground so that the U.S., is a more cognizant of European predilections and provides some type of reassurance about the type of world they want. But Europe also shows the U.S. that it's willing to defend itself in this system and not be handcuffed by the rules that it advocates. In a triangular relationship, there are always sort of three sides. I'm curious how UJ sees Europe's role. I mean, what's the mood in Beijing, as far as you can tell, about what they expect Europe's role to be in this context? I recall that several years ago, Xi Jinping gave a speech at Davos where he was trumpeting the fact that China was a strong proponent of global free trade at a time when Europeans were complaining that the Trump administration was slapping tariffs on European steel and aluminium exports. And so how is China viewing Europe's role in this context? Well, within Beijing's mindset, there's a clear different, again, two camps in here. They obviously believe that Europe would like to see a better China, which observe the European rules, observe the rules of multilateral institutions. On the other hand, Beijing believes that America wants to have a weaker China, a weaker China, and there's no way they can compete with the United States. So China does not want to be more of either. It doesn't want to be better in the European sense or it doesn't want to be weaker in the American sense. And what China wants to be is just want to write rules, write the rules of international organizations, write the rules for international trade by itself. Because China felt itself somehow missed the opportunity after the Second World War, since even after 1989, after the end of Cold War, to write the rules of international order. And perhaps China consider, given what's happening, given there's a vacuum of the leadership has been left by the United States, and perhaps China will be taking the opportunity to do so to fill that void. But obviously China realized it is incredibly difficult to do because China does need followers. And at this very moment, there aren't many countries in the world actually agree with the rules that are set up by the Chinese. So, I mean, clearly you can see within the dispute within WTO or the dispute within the UN, I mean, clearly China's ideas of proposing international governance also propose the way of setting up investment treaty and free trade agreement and not entirely agreed by not just the developed world, but also developing world as well. So China somehow has been left in this very lonely position so I think ultimately the Chinese leadership will have to adapt approach that agree China will be lonely for quite some time ever since then now from within the international community. But how China is going to square that circle to bridging that gap between United States and European Union. And I don't really think the senior leadership has made up its mind yet. However, the senior leadership has a lot of complaints regarding the Europeans because they felt they had enormous confidence with the European integration project in the beginning of the 21st century, but that has not really been substantiated. And China has not really been welcomed by the Europeans when it comes to trade issues, when it comes to investment issues. And China just somehow feel rather resented. So we're in that kind of, again, a cooling off period between Beijing and Brussels. 
And then, of course, the Brussels complaint about China divide and rule by using different member states and um, disunite um, European integration projects. So complaints go on both sides. And I don't think any side is innocent in this game. But obviously, the Chinese deeply felt disappointed towards the European Union. Hans Paul, can you address that, this element of disappointment? Because in Europe, there are significant concerns, particularly over the past, what is it, year and a half, two years, about the Belt and Road, about Chinese economic influence in European economies, but also about the global trade rules, the fact that there are concerns that Chinese companies are getting state subsidies and the unlevel playing field that emerges as a response. So what are the European grievances besides that? Yeah, I think many of the European grievances are not new. They have been they have been there for for several decades. But a few things that changed in the past few years. One is that a couple of years ago there was a big surge in Chinese direct investment, Chinese investment in European companies, and this caused a lot of concern, at least in in some European countries, where they thought that you know Chinese companies, with the support of the Chinese government, has embarked on a program of systematically weakening the uh, European competitiveness and taking away the competitive basis for Europe in in a global economy. And the other big change in the past few years is the changing relationship between the US and China. I think this has had a very big impact on Europe and how European governments look particularly at issues of national security and the impact of Chinese economic influence for their national security. So at the moment, Europe is at the same time looking or experiencing bigger tensions in the relationship with China because of various initiatives that have been taken on the European side to address issues relating to economic security and vulnerability. And at the same time, the relationship with the US is also under pressure because the European governments and the European Commission is not exactly moving in in the same direction or let's say towards the same position that the US is currently taking towards China. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the US, China, and the EU, the great decoupling. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, Search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Scott Kennedy, Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics. He is here alongside UJ, Senior Research Fellow on China at the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And finally, Franz Paul von der Putte, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingenau Institute. It's a very frustrating picture that emerges, that Europe is on the one hand caught in the middle, but it also has disappointments and grievances towards both the United States and China. China is disappointed in a relationship with Europe and anticipates continued tension with the U.S. The U.S. is disappointed with Europe and the U.S. has 
a number of grievances with China. So we're in kind of dysfunctional relationship, these, these three mega trading blocks. How do we get out of it? What are clever suggestions of how to break through the stasis or this vicious cycle in which we find ourselves? Sure, I'm happy to uh, weigh in on this question. It's what we think about all the time in Washington these days as we watch the relationship go over the cliff. Can we fix it and get the cars back on the road? I guess what we need to do is recognize that unconditional engagement, what Secretary of State Pompeo called blind engagement, that era is over. There's just no political appetite in the United States for unconditional interaction with China across the board, whether it's trade, investment, people flows, you name it. At the same time, we also need to recognize that outright decoupling isn't going to solve the problems either. It's not necessarily going to make the United States and the rest of the world more safe and might not necessarily be able to be achieved. The type of decoupling we might get might end up leaving the United States more isolated than China and no safer than it is now. So the question is, can we find a space in the middle between the two poles where we still try to have a strong relationship with China, but attach some significant conditions to mitigate the risks that really exist between the US and Europe on the one hand and China on the other to democratic free market societies in the West and China's very illiberal system as state-led mercantilist economy? And can we live by those standards and try and get China to abide by them? And if we can't, then we'll have a smaller relationship. I think a great example is with Huawei. What can we do about this behemoth company that is got its products all over the world, including in Europe, and still maintain a relationship? Right now, the Trump administration's view is that you have to crush the company in a variety of ways. I think there's a lot more that we could do to manage the risks that we face with Huawei and China's telecom sector that would preserve the American semiconductor industry and global supply chains, but also leave us better off. And it's just coming up with the type of standards that we need to protect ourselves from the various types of risks that exist in those industries. And I think the U.S. and Europe can collaborate on coming up with those kind of standards, uh, but it's going to require the, the, the Europeans to really be willing to live by those standards and and maybe do some things that China doesn't want. And if they can do that, I think they'll find a friend in, in Washington. What do you think when you listen to this, Yuja? Is this something that you think will be received positively in Beijing? And perhaps as a follow-up question, earlier you mentioned that China wants to help set the rules. But from a European perspective, I think that's very welcome. But it's precisely the rules that there are disagreements on. For instance, when it comes to state subsidies or intellectual property or tech transfers. And so I'm curious, what would be acceptable in terms of conditions or new rules that would be acceptable to the Chinese government to get out of this current impasse? Indeed, China wants to be the rule writer, agenda setter rather than the rule follower. But that's also largely dependent on from what, whatever we have discussed so far on the relations between EU, China or United States and China. The key thing is, is not to undermine the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. And what is that legitimacy resting on? It's the resting on how China would be quickly recover from this global pandemic and how quickly Chinese economy will be recovered from this pandemic after this. So what China should do now is to listen to whatever European friends and American friends have been suggested 
and while using those external voices to facilitate some internal changes, to change certain practices and certain behavior, like, for example, state subsidies and, for example, a lack of protection of IPR. I mean, these are the longstanding issues that Chinese government intended to address years ago. And perhaps these external impetus would really drive the Chinese government. There are certain upper echelon of the Chinese government would prefer to change that behavior. So I would actually consider this impasse and this standoff and this external crisis could perhaps turn into the reform-minded leaders inside China, that opportunity to facilitate some change. And then that perhaps that will be go with the wish of Europeans to have a better China. But whether the Chinese leadership will agree on this, the Chinese leadership may do, but maybe the Chinese leadership will not say, because the last thing the Chinese leadership wants to be perceived by its own population, it is not to show its weaknesses, it's not to show its conceding towards foreigners. And that is essentially, the Chinese government cannot do that. So I think the backdoor channel for negotiation But if Europeans constantly offer this kind of explicit attacks towards China regarding IPR, regarding trade practices within WTO or in the massive media, and this will not really facilitate those changes as the Europeans would desire. It's interesting. It chimes with something I heard last year when I was in China talking to Chinese experts about this same topic, where there seemed to be a willingness to talk about updating global trade rules, but not under the threat of tariffs or blacklists or under the threat of a trade war. And I see your point that the rhetoric also coming from Europe these days makes that quite difficult to sell at home for the Chinese leadership. Franz Paul, how do you see this? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting point. So if it would be possible to maintain a certain degree of pressure by Europe and US together, for certain economic changes, economic reform in China, but without doing this in such an open or explicit way that it makes it impossible for the Chinese leadership to be influenced by this. But that raises the question, how is it possible to do that? Certainly in the current situation where everybody is looking at this, I mean, the whole world, but certainly also people in China itself are looking at this very closely at the relations between China and US and Europe. Another thing is, which also makes it very difficult, is that we're not talking about just the economic challenge by itself, but the economic issues that are there are very closely connected to geopolitical aspects. There's also a very difficult other question, uh, which is, suppose that China would indeed address a number of those economic issues that are long-standing complaints by the US and and European uh, sides, would this then open the way for an acceptance of China to basically maintain its political economic system and for China to continue its growth as a global power, as an economic, but also as a geopolitical power? Would the Europeans and Americans allow China to do this? I don't know about the European side, but uh, I wonder what Scott thinks that this may not be something that the US side would be in favor of. The conversation as it's gone so far suggests that, you know, there's a great deal of anxiety in the U.S. and Europe about our relationship with each other and with China. And I understand that. But I think we need to operate from a position of self-confidence and that the U.S. and Europe have built a system since World War II that has been extremely successful. And although China has done extremely well the last several decades, 
partly because it's integrated to that system. China faces a lot of its own internal challenges and difficulties. And I think if we engage China with a greater sense of self-confidence and the kind of world that we want, an awareness of the kind of world that we want, then I think we won't need to be as timid. China really desperately needs connectivity with Europe and the United States for technology, for students and training, for finances, for everything. Secretary Pompeo last week in his speech in California said, China is more dependent on us than we are on them. And I think that is actually just empirically true. Uh, And I think we can use the benefits of China's dependence on us to push for changes in how China interacts with the rest of the world on economics and national security not as a way to contain China or bury China or change the Communist Party outright. That's something for the Chinese people to decide for themselves. But I think we need to defend ourselves. And I think we can do that in a way which is honest, which generally follows the rules of the road that we set and not apologize for it. And I think the Chinese will deal with that. I don't think that turning inward and China going back to the way it was pre-reform era will work for Chinese. And they know that. And so I think that we can benefit from this interdependence that we've built with them to encourage, sometimes with a little force, a little pressure, uh, change there. I think it's just absolutely necessary. I'm worried that we're going to equivocate forever and never do anything and just sort of slide along, which won't help us at all. Yeah, that's a very valuable comment. I have one final question for all three of you, which is, what do you expect from the respective US, Chinese, and European governments in the short term? Not what do you expect to actually happen, but what do you hope that they do? If you were to give them a policy recommendation, what, say, you get three wishes, one for the US government, one for the Chinese government, one for the European Commission, what would it be to get out of this impasse? Because I think we all agree that decoupling would be a net loss, not just for the global economy, but for national security. I think we also agree that it requires mutual respect to get out of the impasse, but it also requires, as you said at the end, to remain true to your own values. With that mutual respect in mind, what are the three wishes if you would be granted them? Yujie, can I put you on the spot first? My wish would be the Chinese Communist Party needs to reset the relationship between the party and the market. I mean, obviously, that's a permanent debate within the Chinese Communist Party in the last 40 years. But I see this debate and this relationship need to be reset, become more even acute, become more even pertinent for now. Because by introducing a true market economy, and this will unleash the energy from the private sector, which currently employed more than 80% of China's total employment. And also this would help the Chinese economy rejuvenating to the extent which really quickly recovered from this post-COVID-19 scenario. The Commerce Party would really allow the market to play a role, to play a decisive role, rather than redistribute the resources by political wishes. But they should really allow the economic reality to distribute the resources rather than any political willingnesses. By doing so, and that would really also show European friends and American friends that China is still open and China is still interested in the so-called economic globalization. So reset the relationship between the party and the market. I know it's a big ask, but this is something China will have to do in order to cross all the hurdles that the Chinese Communist Party facing for its economic disruption. 
Franz Paul? Well, for the European side, European governments and the European Union, I think they should look very closely at both at China and at the US and, and learn from them. I think there's a lot we can learn from China in how to deal with managing your economic vulnerabilities. And I think there's a, a lot also we can learn from the US because when it comes to thinking of how to deal with China and what to accept from China and what do we find unacceptable. So for European governments, it's important to have a very clear idea of whether China as it is, as a country that is ruled by a communist party, whether in the long term China can be a, an acceptable partner for Europe and if so, under which conditions. And also at the same time, making sure that European bargaining position and the vulnerabilities on the European side are much more robust, attract much more attention than they have had in the past few years. And Scott, what's your wish? I have uh, one wish for each of the three. I'm less ambitious uh, than Yujie or Franz Paul toward the US and China. I have bigger hopes for the EU. For the US, I just hope that they'd practice some restraint and just not get us in a war with China but between now and the end of the Trump administration's first term or the end of his presidency altogether. I just hope the Chinese would welcome, engage in some introspection and be able to consider the possibility that they actually have contributed to the decline in the relationship, not just over the last few months, but the last few years. For the EU, I'd just like them to develop some courage. They've developed courage to say some tough things towards China. Now they need to develop some courage to take some actions. And I really hope that they either launch a, a trade remedies case or an antitrust case against any Chinese national champion, whether it's Huawei or some big SOE that operates in Europe, just some way use the rules of the road that exist to push back. So I think if we could find some restraint, some introspection and some courage, we could get this trilateral relationship back on a better path. Then I have one final bonus question, which I just thought of. We have three potential trade agreements hanging in the air. The EU is negotiating a bilateral investment treaty with China. It's been negotiating for several years. Progress is slow. The EU also wants to negotiate a trade deal with the United States, whether it is to sort out the Boeing Airbus tit-for-tat tariffs or the other tariff issues related to steel and aluminium, or perhaps even a TTIP 2.0. And then thirdly, the U.S. and China signed a phase one agreement. Is there a phase two in the air? So if I can ask you, which of these three will materialize first? A phase two U.S.-China agreement, a TTIP 2.0 or a U.S.-EU deal, or an EU-China bilateral agreement? Which of the three would it be? Scott? It seems to me of those three, an EU-US deal is the most likely to come first. But I don't think either of the three of these hold a candle to the importance of CPTPP and the US rejoining it and expanding it. To me, that is by far the most important international economic agreement that exists and needs to be expanded. The others are complementary to that, but I'd put that one at the top of my list. And we should spend another podcast on the CPTPP. UJ, which of the three? The three almost sound like a mission impossible to me. But then apart from what Scott just mentioned, there was another trade deal that China was hoping to provide a bigger, a greater impetus, which is RECP. So the first ever led by developing countries trade packs. So that would take into effect. So given we have the three, the big mega deals we talk about in here, then complement by RECP. So depends whatever they have decided. 
But ultimately, I think this, to have that three, it will be incredibly difficult to come through into realization at the end. And Franz Paul, what do you think? I'm not going to try to predict because it's beyond my capacity. Okay, well, thank you all three of you for being put on the spot by me. And I apologize for trying to ask you for predictions. We won't hold you to it. But what we will do is we will definitely return to this very fascinating topic, which is not just interesting analytically, but also hugely momentous in the histories of all our countries and regions. You've been listening to a podcast with Scott Kennedy from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, UJ Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House, and Franz Paul von der Pütte, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingendahl Institute. Thank you very much to all three of you. AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.